Welcome to week one of community-based pharmacy practice, and it's an honor to have joining me for this week, Professor Emeritus Mary Alice Bennett, past president of the American Pharmacists Association, really the one who set the vision for what this course is all about and the importance of this course for our future leaders. So in this week, we're gonna really spend a little bit of time defining exactly what is community-based pharmacy practice and who is a community-based pharmacy practitioner as we feature several of those sites and practitioners throughout the course. Let's start first with hearing a little bit more about your background and the work that you've done in uh, various professional organizations, but most notable would be in the American Pharmacists Association. Okay, uh, I actually started in hospital pharmacy I did my internship at OSU um, Medical Center. It was called then, not the Wexner. <laughs> and uh, I was one of the, once I became licensed, I was one of the first pharmacists to be able to go up on the floors, mm. uh, and which was a, really the beginning of that entrepreneur uh, spirit in me, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, and so I, I always consider that a really magical time. And, and I learned a lot about uh, being innovative, mm -hmm. creating change, building relationships uh, during that era of practice. Um, and it was a very exciting time uh, to be at OSU. Uh, from there, I um, uh, came back to the university when the Division of Pharmacy Practice was initially started and uh, was a part-time faculty mm -hmm. member uh, and worked part of the time then in the ambulatory care pharmacy at, at the outpatient facility uh, at the OSU Medical Center. And out there, it just evolved into more of a faculty position and, and I actually was part-time. Uh, for a while and uh, actually even worked at Harding Hospital mm -hmm. in mental health uh, for a short period of time. So I've done a variety of different things. I feel like I've started a lot of things uh, and handed them over to other people to maintain, uh, which I think is a lot what an entrepreneur does yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, but I eventually, when I became full-time uh, after my children were in college, I came back as a, a full-time clinical track faculty member at OSU, mm -hmm. and, and part of the responsibility there was to have a practice create innovative delivery models and train students and the way the future of pharmacy mm -hmm. uh, hopefully was going to be practiced. Uh, so we created the community residency program then uh, and uh, started a practice called University Health Connection, mm -hmm. which was an interprofessional clinic here for faculty and staff at the university. So there are lots of opportunities to create new delivery models, to be in new uh, practices and partnerships. Uh, and learned a lot from my mistakes over the years. Uh, I think the things I've been most excited about have been the residency program mm -hmm. uh, that we started in, in the community, which really mirrored a lot of what we learned from the hospital mm -hmm. practice from the very beginning. Uh, and then the practice of University Health Connection, which I still think is the future where, yes. where practice is gonna be. And I had an opportunity to practice in, in that location in 2008. And the way I always describe it is really patient-centered medical homes mm -hmm. and really the, the vision of, I think, where we're trying to go well ahead of its time at, at the component. So tell me, even though you've had a variety of different experiences in a variety of different practice sites, when I think of your career, I really think of defining the history of the evolution of the community-based pharmacist practitioner and really the scope of what we're trying to do in community practice. And where, where did that passion for community pharmacy practice come from? So I think I, think, uh, I learned so much as a one of the first clinical pharmacists in the country and to see what pharmacy could do. And I watched how residency training really evolved practice mm -hmm. in, in the uh, hospital setting. Uh, and so there was much to be learned there. And I have to say, I was probably inspired most by Cliff Lachalet, who in the uh, late 1980s said, Mary Alice, this needs to happen in the community world. And that once Cliff gave you instruction, he didn't forget, mm -hmm. he would come back and see how well you were doing on that. So I think part of my inspiration came from Cliff's vision that this needed to be done throughout pharmacy mm -hmm. practice, 
um, it was need, it didn't need to be isolated into the inpatient environment. Uh, about that time, Hepler and Strand were starting the concept of pharmaceutical care, um, and that was a very exciting time as well. Uh, and so I, I felt it really inspired as we moved more into the ambulatory mm -hmm. care setting for our practice uh, faculty at the college that uh, it was a great opportunity, great window of time to look more at the community mm -hmm. uh, practices that were there. And I think at the time we, we were looking actually in a health system pharmacy was the first site in an outpatient mm -hmm. pharmacy. Uh, at, then in the late 90s, the, the concept of community residence began to evolve, and it just all kind of, kind of came together as a, um, a new way of looking at how we could take what clinical pharmacy had done mm -hmm. in inpatient pharmacy and show what pharmaceutical care could do in a community-based setting. And I think there's no better time to be talking about this topic, this course. I mean, we're in a, in a significant period of disruption in the healthcare mm -hmm. system. Every person we've talked about at this course, in this course, talks about the evolution of practice really moving toward the outpatient setting uh, and obviously the role and scope of a pharmacist needing to be doing so as well. So let, let's first define what is community-based practice because we're gonna use that term throughout this course. So in the simplest form, community-based practice is anything outside of inpatient practice. Uh, in a more complex form, thinking about where you're in longitudinal relationships mm. with patients, where you're part of the community, uh, in which uh, they, I like to say, work, live, play, and pray, mm -hmm. uh, and that you are you are a leader in that community, and you are um, able to advance that practice and be an advocate for mm -hmm. your patient. So it is it it's not confined to four walls of a community pharmacy. It's not confined to a clinic setting. It's confined to wherever there's a community of patients that have special needs that need to be met around mm -hmm. medications. Uh, and you're you're actively involved not only in taking care of that patient, but in being involved in that community uh, that you've attached to. And so I know you and Kelly Good and others did some work mm -hmm. to really define what this term meant. Mm -hmm. And I remember just four or five years ago, the transition to community-based mm -hmm. residency accreditation standards and utilizing this term community-based. Why, why did you think that vision of common terminology was so important? So in about 2014, 15, there was mm -hmm. a visioning uh, group that uh, task force that got together looking at where basically community residencies training was going to go. And the co concept of looking out of the four walls of a community pharmacy evolved out of that uh, visioning committee. And recognizing as we started looking at purpose statements mm -hmm. uh, for the standards for community residencies, um, that pharmacists in the outside of inpatient setting don't attach to the right. word clinical pharmacist. Mm -hmm. um, but yet we recognize there were many people evolving, growing practices that were providing advanced patient care outside of inpatient. Mm -hmm. uh, and they needed to be recognized and they needed to actually recognize themselves mm -hmm. uh, for, for what they were doing and the impact that they were having. Um, so the first term was we recognize them as practitioners. So they were in the community and they were pharmacists. Right. So community-based pharmacists, practitioners was the term that evolved. Um, and I've never done anything that so organically has spread as come up with that term. I'm, I'm totally amazed with how people have gravitated to it mm -hmm. and began to use it organically without really, without really much marketing or, or, or a push for that to happen. And it's definitely catching on. And mm -hmm. that's really one of the visions we have for this course is that we have leaders, future leaders that will be impacting organizations and many others mm -hmm. through their roles within their organizations, but also out in professional mm -hmm. associations to really use that common terminology for the reason that you mentioned uh, and the importance that it provides within within our profession. So from your 
experience. Obviously, you really had the beginning foundation for this community-based aspects of the MSHSPA program. Why, why do you think it's important that Health System Pharmacy Administration residents and future leaders really have a good understanding of community-based practice? Well, for, for many reasons. One being that, that the recognition that, that we have one goal, hmm. um, that we are on one team. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's recognizing that there are pharmacists in multiple settings that are providing enhanced patient care services, that we all need to be a part of the team, we all need to be able to work together. Mm -hmm. And I think we put a lot of energy into working with other healthcare providers as being part of the team. I think we have been lax on looking at how we communicate with, with, with each other in mm -hmm. different practice settings within pharmacy and, how, and what we can expect and what we can uh, learn and yes. what we can hand over to somebody else. Uh, so having our own transitions from your inpatient pharmacist to your uh, ambulatory care pharmacist mm -hmm. to your community pharmacist to your specialty pharmacist to your long-term care mm -hmm. pharmacist to that health coach that you have in your church. Yes. How, how can we make all those people be a part of the team? And so how can, and I think it starts with respect. Mm. And so learning about what each person does um, and even learning about what we do to make their job harder and what we can do to make the other side's yes. job easier. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think I think the, it, it's, it's helping to form the pharmacy team that takes care of that patient. So it's interesting when you describe, you know, the pharmacy team, you have obviously the inpatient mm -hmm. pharmacist, you have the ambulatory care pharmacist, you have the community pharmacist mm -hmm. who, who may be involved in the dispensing process. You mentioned others that are in the community. So, so trust and respect a big mm -hmm. part of that to develop that pharmacy team. But it seems like there's other barriers that we also have to knock down for that team to function well. You know, one, one I think of right away would be just information communication. Yeah, interoperability of that information yes. as well. So, yes. so tell us a little bit about that or even other barriers you think we need to knock down for this team to be more cohesive. So I, I you know, definitely having a reimbursement. That's the first thing everybody's mm -hmm. gonna come up with as far as just being able to provide the services and keep the services moving. Right. Um, having uh, a delivery model that's different than the one that we look at currently. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at interoperability of health information technology. Right. Uh, looking at how we use technicians and not being afraid that technicians are going to take over jobs, but looking how technicians mm -hmm. can, can uh, work towards helping us enhance our ability to, to provide more advanced patient care. Uh, looking at scopes of practice together you know, so not thinking about just scopes of practice for our own settings, but how do we how do we advance scope of practice so that we mm -hmm. can communicate better, that we do define uh, in, a, in a more a cohesive way mm -hmm. who can do what and who who you know in my mind who owns that medication right. list. Right. Uh, that's I think as a pharmacist that's our role. We mm -hmm. own that medication list, and how do we work together to make sure that that medication list looks the same in every one of those settings that that patient that patient crosses. So here we are in 2019, mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of discussion around community-based practice mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. Some may be very positive, mm -hmm. maybe some not, depending on how how you look at it and how optimistic or opportunistic you are. You know, we have potential threats coming from. Companies like Amazon or PillPack mm -hmm. or others, we have challenges with, with PBMs and reimbursement. But I think also in any period of disruption or innovation, you have great opportunities mm -hmm. to really evolve and to make sure that we define history going, going forward. As you look at community-based pharmacy practice in 2019, what are some of the greatest opportunities and challenges that you see? So I think, again, we always look at the, the challenges being reimbursement. Right. We have many opportunities that we didn't have 20 years ago to look at way to enhance reimbursement models. 
Uh, and so we're seeing lots of quality markers. Uh, so if we can identify the gap that mm -hmm. practices have in that practice could be a virtual partnership right. or it could be where you're embedded in mm -hmm. the practice. Um, but looking at what quality markers pharmacists can impact, which then increases reimbursement rates or, or increases value added right. um, pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I think looking at the opportunities that are there in the world of quality, uh, looking at opportunities where pharmacists can not only improve patient care, but they can take care of uh, patients that then allow the physician in a, in a very heavy practice mm -hmm. or the prescriber could be a PA or a nurse practitioner. If you're in a very um, large practice, if a pharmacist can see some of the patients, then the physician who can bill at a higher mm -hmm. rate or can bill when a pharmacist can't bill yeah. can also uh, see more patients in those categories. We are seeing codes out there like medic Medicaid uh, mm -hmm. wellness visits, uh, some of the chronic uh, care codes. Um, there are codes out there that we can use and get reimbursed for. Uh, it takes a lot of work sometimes to figure out what all those are, but there are more opportunities than there used to be. But I think the biggest one for all of us is, is those quality mm -hmm. indicators, getting hooked into where you can help um, uh, a team member have, have their quality marks uh, be better, which then leads up for more value added. Uh, payments for them. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about in this course, what, what are those different quality mm -hmm. metrics and how do they differ from one site mm -hmm. to another and making sure you understand those and understand how they align with the organization's mm -hmm. mission and values is, is critically important. Shifting gears for a moment, you've had a lot of experience getting pharmacist positions justified in the community-based setting. And that's a big focus of this course. And obviously aligning a quality metrics is, is one aspect of that. But what other words of wisdom advice would you have for our students about effective strategies for justifying positions in the community-based setting? Well, I think the first thing you do is you have to find a champion or create mm. one. And some of the best champions have one who ones who have said this will never happen on my watch. Um, so sometimes you have to create a mm -hmm. champion when you can't find one that, that's already there. So and that needs typically to be somebody outside of pharmacy that would help champion, mm -hmm. champion it through. Having uh, not only national data, because there is a lot of, you know, we keep saying we need more data because we're pharmacists, right, but right. there's a lot of national data that shows the impact the pharmacists mm -hmm. can have. But if you can have your own data, they'll say that's fine at what you did there, right. but I want to know what can be done mm -hmm. here. Or I want to, I know what, you know, find that they did that, can you do that? Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to have a portfolio per se of what you're able to do is helpful for helping to justify positions as well. Um, I think that, um, Sometimes you have to do risk sharing. Mm -hmm. um, so that can look be financial risk sharing. That can be time sharing. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes you have to put something on the table. I think that's something we're a little apprehensive about doing sometimes. Yeah. But I think risk sharing is where a lot of people have had the opportunity to get their foot in the door. Mm -hmm. uh, and then people began to realize what value you can bring or you are in a situation where you can see where, where your target should right. be for what your value is. I think one of the most um, astounding experiences I had was we presented to the uh, Academy of uh, Family Practice mm -hmm. Physicians, and we were part of an innovative uh, program that was offered the day before their uh, one of their meetings. And we had a room of, I would say, close to 300 physicians. Wow. Um, and they may have been, some of them may have been office managers right. running, the, um, uh, running those practices. Uh, but we uh, were talking about the benefits of having a pharmacist in your practice. And uh, the 
second panelist by chance just asked how many of them already had a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. And 70% of the people in the room already had a pharmacist allotted for their for their wow. practices. Wow. But they said they didn't know what to do with them. Mm. So I think I think one of the key issues for us is to is to be able to articulate very clearly what a pharmacist mm -hmm. can bring and mm -hmm. what a pharmacist what it would look like to have a pharmacist in your practice. Uh, so I, I don't think that, you know not everybody can walk in and and uh, be that in that first five percent of those early adopters right. and, and create something. So I, I think we need a little bit more of a, a, a toolkit for ourselves and perhaps more of a uh, toolkit for physicians Absolutely. to know how best to use the providers when you when you go in the door. Business people get it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's a, it's a matter of being able to, like they say, and lean in. Uh, mm -hmm. Make sure you're at the table and that you lean in to show what it is you yeah. can do. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're going to talk a lot in the course about the X's and O's when it comes to mm -hmm. billing and reimbursement, quality metrics, and, mm -hmm. and all these different aspects and product reimbursement. But to comment on something you mentioned earlier, relationships and trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even think back to University Health Connection mm -hmm. and the work that you did there. So much of that, I felt like, came from the relationship and trust mm -hmm. and being able to effectively communicate the value of the role mm -hmm. of the pharmacist. But even the receptiveness of that communication starts with relationships and trust. Um, and I think that's... Certainly not a skill we're going to talk about exclusively in this course, but as future leaders need to be thinking about how can they build relationships within their organizations that allows them to maximize opportunities like getting a pharmacist in a clinic and then scaling that to others. Let, let me ask you one follow-up on that. This is timely. So summer 2019, just this summer, the incoming president of the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy casted a five-year vision of, I think he mentioned, having 50% of all physician practices contracted with a pharmacist in one way or another. And you know, on, on one aspect, you love the bold vision. On another aspect, you start to think about logistics details. You know, How do you get there? From your experience and your perspective, where we are today and getting to something like 50% of all physicians contracting with a pharmacist, what, what are some of the, the challenges that are in front of us to be able to do that? Probably mainly ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, being able to to take that risk and mm. be in uh, to be to provide what you already know you can provide in a, in, a, in an agreement that's different than what everyday life right. looks like for us today. Mm -hmm. So so sometimes I think we're our own biggest enemy. Um, so be, being willing to take those risks to go into those environments, mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, logistics uh, are those going to be virtual relationships? Right. Are those going to be embedded relationships? Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think we can't walk away from technology. I think we're going to see a lot done um, mm -hmm. by by even physical assessment Absolutely. done uh, yeah. through kiosks. Yeah. I mean, the technology is all there. So I think being willing to get out of our comfort mm -hmm. zone is is a really important piece of that. I I think identifying. Um, Recognizing that not every practice is the same, so the needs of that one practice is going to be different than the needs yes. of the other. So, so what what business plan I bring in needs to be tailored to the practice yes. I'm partnering with. So it's not one size mm -hmm. fits all, not one community fits mm -hmm. all, geographically, financially, socioeconomically, mm -hmm. all those things will vary. So not thinking that you can do a cookie cutter approach, yeah. that it is gonna to have to be individualized, which comes down to those relationships mm -hmm. again, of, of knowing who you're going into partnership with. Yeah. So when you just described all the variability that can happen, I would even say if you have a health system, 
between multiple clinics mm-hmm. within a, a health system, let alone outside of the walls, I start to think it's, it really takes a unique skill set to be an effective community-based pharmacy leader. So talk to us about what you think are the skills necessary for somebody to be an effective leader in the community-based space. Certainly relationship building is important. Mm-hmm. Community-based practice is almost totally built on relationships. Uh, I always used to say when I was in the hospital, you know, you got the patient in the bed, you've got the dietitian down the hall, you've got PT. They don't have much choice. They have to get out of the bed. Right. They can only eat what they're given. Right. And so, you know, you've controlled their, their environment and you really, and they're frightened. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a teachable moment for them in that environment. When they leave and go back home, uh, it's it's not about telling them what to do. So it's it's learning about having those relationships mm-hmm. and developing those trusted relationships. And so it's the same with providers mm-hmm. as you as you start to build these practices. You have to have those kind of relationships as well. So relationship building, I think, is critical. Uh, I think looking at other healthcare providers who have started their own mm-hmm. practices in a way that's what right. we're talking about is that. We do have to have some business sense, mm-hmm. and and uh, and really, pharmacy was embedded in yes. the early days as the as the local businessman. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think we're coming mm-hmm. doing a roundabout instead of a instead mm-hmm. of a crossroads. We're doing a roundabout back to looking at how those practices uh, were set up. They were businessmen. They were embedded in their communities. They were advocates in their mm-hmm. communities. They were leaders in their communities. It's, it's kind of the yes. same type of concept. But I think. Uh, we can't look the other way on the business piece, even though we might be part of a large organization, mm-hmm. part of a large health system. We have to have some business savvy, uh, quality mm-hmm. indicator savvy uh, skills about us to be able to maneuver that environment. I agree. And I think we're doing a great job when you think about a PharmD program and training mm-hmm. clinicians. Mm-hmm. But are we training clinicians who can also be flexible if you drop them in a practice site mm-hmm. to start to figure out some of the relationship stuff, the business mm-hmm. case, how do you effectively communicate with stakeholders, and what can we do to help prepare them, or what can these future leaders do to help train their staff to be effective? To your point, every site has nuances and differences that there's no one model you can teach that's gonna be effective mm-hmm. in, in every site as we look at community-based services. And it's not gonna be, it may not be, it may be effective today and it will be effective right. tomorrow because right. as, as things change legislatively, mm-hmm. um, as we get provider status, all those things yeah. will, will make, make a difference. So speaking of things changing legislatively, Mm -hmm. um, I've only been in the profession for 11 years now, but I can't remember in those 11 years so many things moving Mm -hmm. within a year period here in Ohio as well as nationally. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably more here in Ohio than nationally. Yes, (laughs) which is exciting. Um, But talk to us from your perspective as somebody who has had a career in community-based practice Mm -hmm. and you really casting a vision going forward. What are some advocacy opportunities that are out there that our leaders need to be in tune with to help advance this area of practice? Well, certainly we haven't given up on provider status. Uh, And I feel like the national, I think of the national movement for provider status is looking at where we fit in in the future. So we we want provider status at a national level because we want to be included in delivery models that are being Mm -hmm. rolled out kind of as we speak. Um, and we want, we know that as the national level goes, uh, other insurers tend to follow. So that's, that's in some ways feel like an easier route, although we've had the most progress at the state levels. Um, and so being an advocate at the state level um, and supporting your state associations, mm-hmm. I think is critical under this provider status uh, mm-hmm. movement that we're seeing. I think we've learned a lot from the early states that have gotten provider status. We know just getting provider status doesn't get you paid, so Mm -hmm. we need to make sure the regs are written Mm -hmm. correctly so that 
payment is insured. Um, We need to make sure that those relationships with insurers are there, Mm -hmm. that it's not a forced kind of thing. So the relationships are not just with patients and health systems Mm -hmm. and providers. They're with insurers. They're with government agencies. um, They're with your state associations. Um, And so it's a wide sweep as we build those relationships Mm -hmm. for that advocacy piece. I think being really on top of what changes are happening and being on the front line of using those changes, mm-hmm. once we have those tools, they need to be used and shown that they're effective and that they, that they were the right decision. We need to discover where we made mistakes mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. so that we can get back in there and change legislatively what needs to be done to help. I think as we move on provider status, even though we market provider status as we're not asking for a change in right. scope of practice, I think as we get provider status and it's recognized what we can do Mm -hmm. and how much more we can do, I think then we need to begin to see where we need to loosen the scope of practice issues that may be holding us back from being even maximizing more what our education has prepared Mm -hmm. us to do. So since you have a unique perspective on obviously the state level, but also involvement with APHA on a national level, what, what is holding us back on a national level with provider status and why is that piece still so important? Let me tell you why I think it's still so important, and then we'll go. It'll be more opinion wide what that's holding sure. us back. I, I think it's it's important for us to be on that list that says we're a provider. Mm. There are so many people on that list, and we're not. So I think from a uh, just from a moving forward perspective, when delivery models are created, when decisions are made, and they say that list of people can do this, we want to be on that mm-hmm. list, so we don't have to go in and fight for every next step that we want right. to make. So I think it just, it, for the future, makes life much easier mm-hmm. for us. Um, the barriers, I think, part of it is that I think we we're really hopeful that if there was any healthcare changes that we could just mm-hmm. tack provider mm-hmm. status onto that and it would be a little bit more smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that uh, healthcare hasn't been back on the legislative right. floor um, has uh, uh, hindered us a mm-hmm. bit. Um, I think, uh, when you do a CBO marking, mm-hmm. um, they don't look at how much money you save. They only look at how much money you cost. Right. And so we look like we're really adding to the debt. Yes. Uh, and so that, I think, was probably our biggest barrier uh, because we had certainly a bipartisan bill mm-hmm. and we had tons of support. So it was really the the fear of adding more to the debt mm-hmm. in, in the current environment that I think that really hurt us with the C, with that CBO. Not that we actually had a CBO marking, but we have, you know, there's right. a... There is a sense of what it may cost, and mm-hmm. I think that has really hurt us. Especially if it doesn't account for the cost savings. And right. We're going to interview uh, Tom Menigan, CEO of APHA, mm-hmm. later in this course, so we'll get his perspective on, on that as well. Last question I have for you is that one of the things that uh, I will never forget is I, I felt like through my residency training, you instilled from us from the day we started, actually from the day we submitted our letter of intent, where we had to answer a question about being a change agent, Mm -hmm. to go forward and be a change agent, no matter what you were doing, whether that was in practice and academia. Tell us about, for these future leaders that are watching this video as we start this course, why it's important for them to instill that that belief of being a change agent, not only as their their own individual progress as a leader, but also as they think about impacting community-based practice. So for one thing, I feel like Residents, master's students here at OSU sit in a legacy program, mm-hmm. sit in, a, uh, in an environment where making a difference, creating change, moving things forward is the legacy of this institution. So you become a part of that legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, for one, to keep that moving and to keep that alive is really important. I don't think we're going to be able to stay 
where we are, so we need to move forward so further to, to be um, the opportunities for us to make the impact that we can. Things do have to change. I always think of being a change agent in three parts, and this really has come more clearly to me in the latter years of my mm -hmm. career. But I think of honoring the past, embracing the present, and creating the future. Mm -hmm. And so I look back, uh, and as I looked, moved into the community-based world, um, I learned a lot from what honoring the past of what mm -hmm. I learned as becoming a, a clinical pharmacist in those early days mm -hmm. and in those early opportunities. And some of those things carried over and some of those things had to be let go mm -hmm. of. And so knowing knowing from the past what works, but I think you have to I think you have to honor your past mm -hmm. and look at, at what worked and, and what didn't or what can work today and what can't right. and why. And then embracing the present. You know, you have to you have to this as the book mm -hmm. Good to Great says, you have to recognize you know what? You know what? What's not good, mm -hmm. uh, and um, you have to face that reality. Uh, and that doesn't say that you still don't have hope, and you don't look for for the passion and the promise. But you got to face, you know, what the right. problems are today. And so we have to identify those. And our job to create the change for mm -hmm. the future then is to is to identify that gap and see where we can stay in our lane and make a difference. And I think that's so timely for where we are at as a profession, but also as we think about community-based practice mm -hmm. specifically. So thank you so much for setting the vision for this course, for the work that you've done over your career in community-based practice, and for taking time to do this interview today. Thank you. Well, I'm excited for that, that this is uh, all coming to fruition, and uh, I'm looking forward to it being a part of what unifies this profession. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.